Take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 22 as we consider today David's song of thanksgiving. We'll read the scripture here in just a moment. For 60 years now, Cross Lanes Baptist Church has been faithful to do the work of God in this community, our state, in North America, and to the ends of the earth. Growing God's Forever Family is more than a passion statement. It reflects who we are in action. We're a multiplying body for the glory of God and for the building up of his kingdom. Over the years, Cross Lanes Baptist Church has reached, ministered to, served, and sent out countless families through the work of this local church. Cross Lanes Baptist Church has been somewhat like a river in the middle of God's will, seeing many people come into this church family, and then because of educational pursuits, vocational callings, family circumstances, the call of God on mission, or even the call of God to be in his presence, have gone out from here into the world to the furthest reaches, and then even home to heaven to be in the presence of the Lord. We're reminded today of our history and the sacrifices that were made early on in order for this church to be established. Cross Lanes Baptist Church began as a mission on December the 20th of 1958. A small group of people met in the home of Bill and Myrtle Frazier to discuss organizing a Southern Baptist Church in this community. John Snedden, the newly appointed area missionary for West Virginia, was present. The group met in the early days in a variety of places in the homes of interested people in the basement of another church in a three-room upstairs apartment not far away here in Cross Lanes at a campground and then eventually at our current location on Knollwood Drive. The first worship service was held on January 25th of 1959 and the church constituted officially as a local body on March the 8th of 1959. They affiliated initially with the Pioneer Baptist Association and also the Baptist State Convention of Ohio as there was no West Virginia Convention of Southern Baptists yet in existence. They bought property here on Knollwood and as we have told in the history in the past, there were families who were willing to put up their own homes as a security guarantee for the purchase of the property that we now reside on. The cornerstone for the church was presented by Hinton McHouston, who was a stonemason from Norfolk, Virginia, and was connected with someone here in the church. In 1970, the church affiliated with the newly formed West Virginia Convention of Southern Baptists, and there have been many changes through the years. The building that we are now in was dedicated in 1983 and has, has of course, had extensive renovations since then. Our Family Life Center across the way here in the Connector was dedicated in 2005. It's hard to believe it's been that long. And we've expanded with adjacent properties and other things that have gotten us to the point that we are. But all of that just amounts to tools for the work that we're engaged in. Our primary focus continues to be to love God and to love people to proclaim the word of God, and to help people 
come to know and to follow Jesus as his disciples, to grow God's forever family in a way that honors God. And I would say to you today that giving thanks for all that God has done for us collectively and also the blessings that we have individually is the only right response to the grace and the mercy of God in our lives. We are instructed in the scripture that giving thanks is, in fact, the will of God for us in Christ Jesus in all circumstances. Giving thanks helps us to look beyond ourselves and to see the perspective that God would have us to see through his word and his spirit. It reminds us that everything that we have and all that we are or ever hope to be has come from the good hand of God. And it also reminds us of just how richly we've been blessed and to not take for granted the goodness of God in our lives. We have much to be thankful for as a church. So many have gone before us and been faithful to pass down the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Something particular that we have reason to be grateful for in recent years is an unparalleled unity. The presence of God's Spirit in our midst that has drawn us together. And even when we face difficulties and obstacles, when we've been able to overcome those because of God's presence in us. Opportunities to grow in faith and to serve others and to be on mission in the world abound through the work of this local church. We're considering today a song of thanksgiving that has come to us from David, the King of Israel. I believe in uh, reality it is a summary of what thanksgiving to God should look like because David was thanking God for all that he had done throughout his life and with some minor variations. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you'll recognize that this parallels with Psalm 18 with only some minor variations found within. I think David probably first wrote it as a personal song of worship, and then it became a song of worship for Israel, uh, collectively worshiping God together. And it is the longest of David's songs, and it follows in the pattern of other songs that were written in the Old Testament as a reminder of what God had done for Israel. And something you'll note is there is a wonderful parallelism here that is a repetition that gives us something that is both beautifully simple and creatively complex. And while I would not normally read a passage this long, I think it's fitting for this day that we celebrate today that we read all of it in its entirety and just hear the words of the Lord and let us see these words as words that are rising to the very throne of God as an act of worship that we as the body of Christ in 2019 would come together and echo what David has said, God, you are faithful and we owe everything to you. Even in the difficulties of life, you intervene. When we cry, you answer. When we call out to you, you hear. When we ask you, you provide. When we need direction, you show us the way. And in all things, God is glorified. So I begin reading in 2 Samuel 22, beginning in verse 1. David spoke the words of this song to the Lord on the day the Lord rescued him from the grasp of all his enemies and from the grasp of Saul. He said, verse 2, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock where I seek refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, and my Savior. You saved me from violence. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I was saved from my enemies. 
For the waves of death engulfed me, the torrents of destruction terrified me, the ropes of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. I called to the Lord in my distress, I called to my God. From his temple he heard my voice and my cry for help reached his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the heavens trembled. They shook because he burned with anger. Smoke rose from his nostrils and consuming fire came from his mouth. Coals were set ablaze by it. He bent the heavens and came down, total darkness beneath his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew, soaring on the wings of the wind. He made darkness a canopy around him, a gathering of water and thick clouds. From the radiance of his presence, blazing coals were ignited. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High made his voice heard. He shot arrows and scattered them. He hurled lightning bolts and routed them. The depths of the sea became visible. The foundations of the world were exposed at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He pulled me out of deep water. He rescued me from my powerful enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out to a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Now verse 21, the Lord rewarded me. According to my righteousness, he repaid me. According to the cleanness of my hands, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not turned from my God to wickedness. Indeed, I let all his ordinances guide me and have not disregarded his statutes. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my iniquity. So the Lord repaid me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the faithful, you prove yourself faithful. With the blameless, you prove yourself blameless. With the pure, you prove yourself pure. But with the crooked, you prove yourself shrewd. You rescue an oppressed people, but your eyes are set against the proud. You humble them. Lord, you are my lamp. The Lord illuminates my darkness. With you, I can attack a barricade. And with my God, I can leap over a wall. God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is pure. He's a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? Verse 32. And who is a rock? Only our God. God is my strong refuge. He makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and he sets me securely on the heights. He trains my hands for war. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your help exalts me. You make a spacious place before me for my steps and my ankles do not give way. I pursue my enemies and destroy them. I do not turn back until they are wiped out. I wipe them out and crush them and they do not rise. They fall beneath my feet. You have clothed me with strength for battle. You subdue my adversaries beneath me. You have made my enemies retreat before me. I annihilate those who hate me. They look, but there is no one to save them. They look to the Lord, but he does not answer them. I pulverize them like dust of the earth. I crush them and trample them like mud in the streets. You have freed me from the feuds among my people. You have preserved me as head of nations, a people I had not known serve me. Foreigners submit to me, cringing. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners lose heart and come trembling from their fortifications. And now verse 47, the Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. God, the rock of my salvation, is exalted. 
God, he grants me vengeance and casts down peoples under me. He frees me from my enemies. You exalt me above my adversaries. You rescue me from violent men. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations. Lord, I will sing praises about your name. He is a tower of salvation for his king. He shows loyalty to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. If we're looking for a framework of this song of thanksgiving, it can be broken down into just a few parts. I would say that verses 1 through 3 are praise to God for keeping his people safe. Verses 4 to 20 are a call to God and a a request to rescue us in a time of trouble. Verses 21 to 29 are thanksgiving for God saving us and imparting his righteousness to us. Verse 30 through 46 is a thanksgiving to God for giving us strength and victory over the obstacles and the enemies of life. And then finally, verse 47 to 51 is a praise for all that God has done and an exaltation of God among all the nations. So what we're going to do is we're going to narrow this down even more. And we're going to look at it in two parts. The first part is an exaltation of God as the giver, thanksgiving to him for who he is. And the second part is going to be giving thanks to God for the gifts. So let's think first about God as the giver, because God as the giver is to be exalted first for who he is. He says here in verse 2 and 3, Uh, his view of God as his rock and his fortress and his deliverer. Now, we're given a little bit of historical context in the opening verse of when and why David was writing this. God delivered him from the enemy who turned out not only to be the enemies of the nations, but also the enemy Saul, who was not happy that he had been anointed. And certainly David could have taken advantage of that along the way, but he continually honored God and he trusted in the Lord to deliver him. And I think David's just simply writing his own experience with God. And is that not how we should approach God? God already knows what we've experienced. He knows the life circumstances that he has placed us in. But we come to him and we communicate to him out of gratitude for what he's done for us. And that's what David does here. And he reflects on God as his place of safety. He speaks of God as his rock, or we might translate that as his lofty crag. Now realize in those days, there were many enemies that David faced, including Saul, as I've already referenced. David would at times run up into the hills and in that rough terrain of the area where he was at, There would be large rocks and even caves among those rocks. And he would be able to go up to an elevated position and look down below at all the enemies or potential dangers that were coming. And that rock or that craggy outpost of rocks would provide a place of protection. So he gives us a a metaphor here. He symbolizes that, in fact, when we're dealing with the situations of life, God is our rock. He's the one who protects us. He's the one who surrounds us. And he is the one who is our fortress. Now, there's an interesting question in verse 32 because ultimately it is a rhetorical question. And the question is this, for who is God besides the Lord? And then a second question follows, and who is a rock? And the answer is only our God. I love the way John Gill, the preacher of the 1700s, put it. He said, If these questions were proposed from the throne of God, 
amidst the surrounding glorified spirits, there would be but a single word of answer echoed throughout all the glorious realm. None. There is no other but God. There is none who is a rock except our God. He said, if that echo were caught by the adjacent circle of angels within the sphere of bliss, and they were asked one by one or in the mass, who is God save the Lord? And the reply would but reiterate the answer which sounds upon the harps of the glorified spirits. None, there is none that is God save our Lord. If the question were put to Beelzebub in the bottomless pit among his infernal crew, who is a God save the Lord? The howling of their despair, the anguish of their spirits, the horror of their damnation would all echo, none but Jehovah is God. And we feel his power. And that's what we resound with today, is that the message that there is only one God, and he is the Lord, and he is the God who is to be exalted as the giver because of who he is. Now, there are several aspects of God as the giver that we find in this passage, and the first is this, the power of God shakes We're brought face to face here with the reality that our God is a powerful God, that he is able to do what is not possible for us to do because his power is limitless. He says in verse 8 that by the power of God, the earth shook and it quaked. The foundation of the heavens trembled and they shook because he burned with anger. So what David is doing is he's recalling being in some difficult situations. Have you ever been in a difficult situation? Have you ever tried to solve a difficult situation on your own and only come up empty? The reason that you came up empty is because your strength is not sufficient. It's only by God's strength that you can truly have the answer to the predicament that you find yourself in. And that's what David's reminding us of here is that even though violence had come against him and his enemies opposed him and the waves of death engulfed him and the torrents of destruction terrified him and the ropes of Sheol entangled him and the snares of death were constantly before him, God in his power acted on his behalf. He intervened in his circumstance. Psalm says in Psalm 55 and Verse 17, evening and morning and at noon, I cry out to God in distress and he hears my voice. We're crying out to an all-powerful God. And I say to you today that one of the characteristics of a powerful church that is reliant on the power of God is that it is a praying church. I was reminded this past week, I was reading a brief history that uh, was compiled back on our 50th anniversary, actually, uh, of the church. And just reading the stories of some of the predicaments that this church has been in over the past 60 years. There were times when there was more uh, month than there was money. There were situations where they needed an answer that seemed impossible. Or we encountered an obstacle for which there was no answer And God intervened time and again, reminding us that it's by God's power that anything of eternal value comes to pass. We must be a praying church. Ian Bounds said the life of the church is the highest life and its office is to pray. Its prayer life is its highest life, the most fragrant and the most conspicuous 
When God's house on the earth is a house of prayer, then God's house in heaven is busy and powerful in its plans and its movements. The very life and prosperity of God's cause, even its very existence, depend on prayer. And the advance and triumph of his cause depend on one thing, that we ask him. What are we asking God for to do in this church if Jesus tarries is coming over the next year, the next five years, the next 10 years, the next 20 years, the next 60 years? What, what are we seeking him for and praying and asking him to do through the world in the reach of the ministries and the mission that we carry out? Our effectiveness will only be as great as our faithfulness is in prayer. No more. Because we want to see God continue to do what only God can do. And in describing the prayers of God's people here, in his own prayers, he speaks of the manifestation of God in delivering him and he references an earthquake that he says is so powerful that it shakes the very foundations. Think about this. How often do we just go through the motions and we do our religious exercises and we go about our business as just business as usual and we're not expecting that God is going to shake the very foundations by his power. And yet that's what we're praying for. That's what David saw in real time. That's what some people experienced throughout the history of this church. And when they prayed, God answered and God intervened in a way that only God could do. And that's what we desperately need. Not just to be satisfied with what has passed, but to be praying for what is to come. To ask God to move on our behalf. As we thank God as the giver We also see that the holiness of God shines. Verse 9 says that smoke rose from his nostrils and a consuming fire came from his mouth. Coals were set ablaze by it. The Bible says our God is a consuming fire. We recognize that the Almighty is present on our behalf. His presence guarantees that there will be anger toward unrighteousness. So when you look around in the world and you see all the things that are happening, you see the unfaithfulness that is taking place even in the church, we recognize ultimately every individual, including us, we as individuals, will be accountable to a holy God. We will answer to him. God will make things right. And he is the one who shows his power, sometimes in judgment, always driven by his holiness. Smoke, fire, coals, they're all a progression. And here's the image that we get. It's as though God is rising up from his throne in heaven. And he is appearing like a volcano that is erupting. And his power shakes, his holiness is manifested, and God is intervening boldly and publicly and even terrifyingly on behalf of his people. And I'm reminded of when God made his presence known to Moses at the burning bush. You remember the bush that would not be consumed that's told of in Exodus? And Moses is told there in that instance when he encounters the glory of God, come no closer, remove the sandals on your feet for the place that you're standing on is holy ground. And then God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. He was afraid to see the glory that was in his midst. 
You see, God's calling us to be a holy people. It says he bent the heavens and came down, verse 10. Total darkness was beneath his feet. He rode a cherub and flew, soaring on the wings of the wind. The holiness of God means that he always does what is right. He never participates in sin. He is separate from us, yet he intervenes for us. He is shrouded in darkness that shrouds his glory. But through his holiness, we are fully equipped to go into the world and do his work. Now, here's the beauty of it. There's nothing we do to earn this holiness. You see, David was looking forward to the promise. God had promised him that he would preside over a throne that would be without end. It was pointing forward to the Messiah. But now we have the privilege of looking back at the finished work of Jesus Christ and also looking forward to what is to come. And we recognize that we have a Savior who came to this earth, who lived and died, and who now lives again. And when we come to Jesus Christ by faith, God imputes the very righteousness of Christ to us so that we can be declared holy just as our Father is holy. It's not of us. It's only because of the cross. It's only because of what God has done for us through His Son. And not only do we need to be a praying church, We need to be a holy church. Our effectiveness will not be any greater than our dependence on the righteousness of Jesus lived out in our midst. And then thanking God as the giver leads us to recognize that the faithfulness of God secures. Notice verse 26. With the faithful, you prove yourself faithful. With the blameless, you prove yourself blameless. Now, he's given us a contrast here between the godly and the godless. He's given a contrast between the humble and the proud, particularly in verse 27 and 28. And the idea is, in some sense, complicated because you can't say that if a person comes to God and is crooked, then somehow God is going to be crooked toward them. But the idea is that if a person insists on being devious, God, being the wise one, will always outdo him. He is shrewd, and he's always a step or two ahead. Because he sees it all. And he always does what is right. And here's what I know. Life is uncertain. And life is treacherous. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. We get tripped up sometimes. And we hang on to the things that are temporary. As though they were the things that were eternal. God's word is encouraging you to hold on to the things that are eternal and trust God in the things that are temporary. See, David got that. He understood it. He understood that God is faithful, that his protection is real and tangible and present, and it also secures our future. So here's the beauty of it. Whether we live or we die, We are in the hands of a sovereign God who loves us. And when we say God is faithful, we mean that God is completely trustworthy. One of the things I thought about this week related to the past 16 years that I've had opportunity and privilege to be a part of this church family are all the dear friends and loved ones that have gone on from our church family 
to be with the Lord. As I thought about that, I, I, I just said to the Lord, Lord, thank you that even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil, for your rod and your staff are with us, and you comfort us. We don't, as Paul reminded us, sorrow as those who have no hope, but we sorrow as a people who are anchored in Jesus, whose eternity is sure, and when we see people that we know and love and are special to us step out into eternity, we know it's not the end, it's only the beginning. We know that God is faithful, and that even when life is difficult and the circumstances are trying, and the day is uncertain, God is faithful. And as a church, we need to be faithful. And that means that we need to be committed to what God has called us to do, that every person is is uniquely gifted by the Spirit of God to invest in this local body of Christ. And we are only as strong as our weakest links. And God wants you to be committed. As we look back at 60 years, we see so many people that week in and week out showed up, committed themselves, prayed, shared the gospel, served, and were diligent in doing so. And we sit here this morning, stand here this morning, with so many blessings abounding because there have been so many people that believed that God is faithful. And faithful people are also a people of faith. Did you hear what I said? Faithful people are also a people of faith. So what does that mean? That means that we're not just resting on the things that have been in the past. We're looking forward to the things that are going to be in the future. We're asking God that if, that if somebody were to stand in this place or wherever else the body of Christ who calls themselves Cross Saints Baptist Church gathers together 60 years from now on the 120th anniversary, we're asking that they would have a story to tell, not just about what happened the first 60 years, but what happened in the 60 years that followed, and it would all be a testimony to our great God who is faithful to his people. What's that story going to be? Are we going to be like so many churches that are scattered all across this nation that had their heyday decades ago, generations ago, and there's just a small remnant that's left that's still looking back and saying, well, that was a real high point in that church, but now we're just trying to keep the doors open. Or are we going to continue to build missionally so that what we have now is a great legacy and a strong history, but we also have a bright future, a certain promise. We need to be a church of faith. And then the second aspect of this whole thing is we thank God as the giver, but then God's people as the blessed are to give thanks to God for the gifts. We all like to give to people that we care about. Think about it in the context of your own children. You, you work and you buy things and you provide for them and you do certain things in their lives and you just do it because you love them. Whether or not you see the immediate response of Thanksgiving, you want good for them. But what you really appreciate is when they see what it is that you've done for them and then as they grow in their own maturity and perhaps in their life as it progresses, they look back and they say, they did that for me because they loved me. 
and they give thanks for the giver with the right motivation, but they also give thanks for the gifts. And if the heart of thankfulness is that we understand that God is the greatest gift, then we will always give thanks for everything that God does on our behalf. So what are some things we're to give thanks for that David shows us here? Well, we're to give thanks for the Lord's deliverance. He says in verse 4, I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I was saved from my enemies. So David cries out in praise to God for delivering him. And I think sometimes we're more passionate about crying out for help than we are praising God for the deliverance that comes. But there were times undoubtedly in David's humanity when he was concerned about the opposition that he faced. And yet time and again, God showed him that his power was greater than David's weakness. And it says, Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 12 and verse 2, Indeed, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. So here's the deal. In the Old Testament, when we find the themes of deliverance or of salvation, it's referring in part to everyday deliverance. Enemies that are in front of us, obstacles that we've got to deal with in life, difficult circumstances, disease, danger that we can face. And it's the idea of God as our deliverer. But here's something that God does in his word is as the, as the biblical narrative progresses, our understanding of what God's deliverance is also progresses and comes into more clear view. God delivered Israel in the Old Testament, yes. But what was their purpose for being chosen as God's special people so that the deliverer the Messiah would be made known and as that biblical narrative progresses we're shown just how far salvation will reach in Jesus so let me say it this way Jesus is the climactic saving act of God through his life death and resurrection That's so good, I'm going to say it again. Jesus is the climactic saving act of God through his life, death, and resurrection. Let me follow by saying this. Salvation is the greatest gift that any human being could ever receive. God's deliverance from our sin and from death and from hell and from the grave is the single greatest gift that we could ever receive because it's not only a deliverance from something, but it is a deliverance to something. It's a deliverance from all the things that will bring us to a place of judgment in the sight of God, but it is deliverance to God himself. You understand? God is the ultimate treasure. Jesus is the ultimate gift of the gospel. And when we understand that, we remain focused on the good news of what Jesus has done. A church has to stay focused on the main thing or many other things will crowd out the main thing and there'll be consequences that follow in said church. Jesus said that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Our responsibility in doing the will of God is to make Jesus known so that those who are lost might be found. And we need to be a church that is a witnessing church. And we overcomplicate it. Witnessing is just sharing about how God has changed your life 
in Jesus and is sharing the good news with somebody else about how God can change their life through Jesus. That's what witnessing is. You don't have to be a seminary-trained theologian to do that. A young child who has been rescued from their sins and who's experienced the grace of God can be a, a witness for Jesus. And we've got to be bold in that. And it's your responsibility. It's, it's our responsibility collectively to open up our eyes and see that the fields are white unto harvest, but the labors are few. It's our responsibility to have a, a brokenness for the lost and to see that the gospel is the why we exist here. There are two things we'll not be able to do in heaven. One will be witness because it'll already be too late and everybody that's there is going to be there. The other will be sin. So what does that tell us about the life of the church now? It is to be a voice for the gospel. We've got to do that. And all the other stuff is just in support of the main stuff. And if we want to continue this legacy that we have and that we've built on, we've got to thank God for His deliverance. And one of the chief ways that you can thank God for His deliverance is to share that hope with others. And then we give thanks for the Lord's reward. There's an interesting verse here in verse 21. He says, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. He repaid me according to the cleanness of my hands, for I've kept the ways of the Lord and have not turned from my God to wickedness. Now, old David was tempted, no doubt, to respond in some unrighteous ways, particularly toward his enemies. As I mentioned earlier, he had an opportunity to come against Saul. It would have been just a matter of self-defense. But he continually conducted himself according to the righteousness of God. When he fell, he ran back to the righteousness of God, and God rewarded him for it. So what he's claiming here is not sinless perfection. He had significant measures of spiritual and moral compromise. Adversity came to him. But what he's claiming here is the very righteousness of God in this very simple fact. Do not miss this. God commands. When God's people obey... God blesses. Now, that's not prosperity gospel because we're not talking about blessing in the things of the world, although God can bless us with some pretty nice things on this earth as well. But this is just a simple truth that God blesses people who do what he says. God blesses those who obey his word. And that's why Luke chapter 11 and verse 28 says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So blessing is going to follow obedience. Do what God says. He's going to honor his word. He's going to honor his son. He's going to honor his people. And you'll experience the blessing as a result. And the name of Jesus will be exalted through it. So we need to be an obedient church. Let me say this as kind as I possibly can, but I'm still going to say it. And if you don't think it's kind and we can still be friends. God does not build his church on the backs of people who show up when it's convenient. God does not build his church on the backs of people who give when they have a little extra left over. God does not build his church on people who do not share their faith. God does not build his church on people who are not dedicated to his word. God does not build his church on people who don't pray. 
He builds his church on people who show up, are obedient, faithful, committed, diligent, and they just keep on doing it. I've said this in some recent months, and one of the things that concerns me the most about the life of this church is the great cloud of witnesses who have gone on from this church, who've graduated to the presence of the Lord in heaven through death. And I think about how faithful many of those people were. Just dependable, obedient, committed people. And then I think about generations to follow. And I say, Lord, help us. Stir in our midst a desire for people to step forward and step up and say yes to what you're calling them to do. Only if we have obedient people will we have a faithful church. And I'm so grateful to God for the faithful saints over all these decades. And those of you who remain faithful in this generation, may others follow your example. And most importantly, may the Spirit of God stir in our souls that we would not simply show up when it's convenient if we don't have anything better to do or anywhere better to invest our time and our resources and our energies. We also need to give thanks for the Lord's guidance. He says here in verse 23, Indeed, I let all his ordinances guide me and have not disregarded his statutes. He says in verse 29, Lord, you are my lamp. The Lord illuminates my darkness. The psalmist would write in Psalm 119 and verse 105, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Not only does God's guidance give us the ability to follow his word, but as a light, it illuminates the darkness so that we can stay on the right path. And in ancient times, each individual, if it was dark, would carry a lantern with themselves. And if they walked in darkness, they needed something to light it up. Today, we have more modern conveniences. But this is the image that, that David has given us here. And he's saying, in this dark world where there's so many pitfalls and there's so many enemies and there's so many dangers. It's the word of God that goes before us. It's the spirit of God who empowers this word. He gives us the guidance that we need. He marks out our paths. And when we trust our, entrust ourselves to him, he shows us the way. So I tell you, the only way that at the 120th anniversary of this church, if Jesus tarries is coming, that there will be a good testimony to tell is if there are people who continually throughout the years proclaim this word and believe it is true, who do not equivocate on it, who do not soften it for the culture, who do not back up to try to make it more palatable to people who do not care about or love the Lord, but there will be people who have stood on the word and continue to stand on the word. You see, that's something that has to be continually cultivated. There have been nine pastors who have served in the life of this church, two of us who have served just over half of the span of the history of the church. But we're just in a long line of succession of God's people in this place proclaiming God's word. And that means those Bible fellowship teachers along the way to sit down in front of those little children in that class uh, of whom only God knows how he's going to use their lives. They've got to proclaim the word and build in those children that God's word is true and he can be trusted, that he'll give us the direction to follow on the right path. 
It's those student leaders that are willing to stand with the Bible and say, even though the culture is calling you in a different direction, this is the way of the Lord and you need to walk in it. It's those Bible fellowship teachers that are reaching out into the community that are week in and week out with no fanfare, with very little accolades, with hardly any attention paid to them, who are in their free time after they've gone to their 40-plus-hour-a-week job, sit down and prepare the Word of God to deliver it to God's people who are standing on that Word and saying, we are in a long line of faithful witnesses, and we will stand on this Word, and we will stay on this Word until Jesus returns. You see, that's the kind of stock that we come from. That's the history of this church. And it's one that we're going to faithfully guard and one that we're going to faithfully go forward in. We've got to be a church that is guided by the Word of God and empowered by the Spirit of God. I close with verse 50. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations. Lord, I will sing praises about your name. Did you know our ultimate expression of thanks is when we make God known among the nations so that all peoples might hear about him? We're celebrating today 60 years of God's faithfulness to his church. I traveled to Dulles Airport uh, these past couple of days. And I saw off one of our former faithful families who went on to plant the great and growing church at Martinsburg get on an airplane and go to a place unknown to them in the heart of darkness in the world to plant their lives. And they're one of many others, and we have the privilege of being able to be a part of it. But this is what we must be about. We must be about taking the gospel down the street and around the world. And the faithfulness of God's people is required. The tenacity to endure when times are difficult is needed. And the gratitude to rejoice when times are good should be evident. So my question would be, if Jesus tarries his coming, what will the coming years of this church be marked out by? And even more importantly, not just that macro question of what will this church look like and what will be our footprint or our testimony here and around the world, but what will be your part in God's story? How might God use you in an even greater way than God is using you now? How might God use you to be a part of this ongoing story of what he's doing through this local body of believers who loves God and loves people and wants to bring people to know him as his disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. That's what we got to be about. May God find us faithful. Let's bow our heads together as we pray for just a moment. Oh, Father, we have so much to be thankful for. We are recipients of your grace and your goodness and your dependability in our lives. And we are also recipients of the faithfulness of many people who have gone before us in the life of this church and some who remain with us who have been here for decades, Lord. And they're just faithful. Oh, God, make us faithful. I pray that our part in the story of what you're doing here would be for the glory of your great name among all the nations. I pray that the multiplication that we've experienced in these recent years especially would be just a taste of the things that are to come. 
God, help us to be a sacrificial and serving people who have one desire, and that is to be a people who glorify your great name among all peoples. Father, I'd be remiss to say if I failed to mention this morning the importance of some who might be among us who are lost. Might be here as a visitor, might have been here for a while, Lord, but yet don't know you. They've never said yes to Jesus. What a great day it would be to enter into the family of God. So God, we pray that you would stir in hearts now as we wrap up our time together. And if there are decisions that need to be made, people would come and they would respond appropriately. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.